0: And welcome to another edition of Cybernia, a podcast exploring science in Ireland and beyond, in association with Discover Science and Engineering. I'm Sylvia Leatham, and with me in studio today are Marie Boren and Triana O'Connell. You can find us online at cybernia.ie, that's S-C-I-B-E-R-N-I-A, or download the latest episode from iTunes. On the show today, what do magic, the circus, and the zoo have in common? We'll be hearing where they fit in to a series of upcoming events known as Maths Week. Simon Elliott from Cork's Tyndall Institute tells us why gadgets like iPods wouldn't work if it weren't for the use of some very clever chemistry. And in our Culture Corner, Triana gets up close and personal with some big fish at the National Aquarium in Galway. If I say the words Maths Week, you might not immediately think of magic, circuses or indeed The Simpsons. But each of these will play a part in a forthcoming series of events taking place around the country and collectively known as Maths Week. It kicks off on the 15th of October and on the line now to tell us more about it is Owen Gill, the coordinator of Maths Week. Owen, welcome to the programme.
1: Thank you very much, Sylvia.
0: Uh, First of all, Owen, what is Maths Week?
1: Well, Maths Week is just what it says. It's a a week about maths uh, and what we're trying to do here is celebrate maths. So uh, we're trying to show the fun side of maths, show how important maths is in people's lives (coughs) and uh, hopefully change people's attitudes about maths.
0: Okay, so I believe there's lots and lots of events going to be taking place. Can you tell us about some of them?
1: Yeah, well, we'll have events all around uh, Ireland, north and south. Um, We'll have uh, events for all ages as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Just in Dublin, for instance, we will have... um, a circus performer doing maths shows for kids in some of the libraries we'll have professor fernando blasco over from spain uh doing matt's magic Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: uh, we will also have um just on the north side of dublin we'll have the uh the helix in dcu uh we'll be presenting andrew jeffrey a mathemagician uh, from <laughs> I From like England, yeah, yeah. He's, uh, he's a, an ex-maths teacher and a professional magician. And he puts those two things together and does a great show for kids. Uh, you know, a lot of magic, a lot of fun, but also showing how maths uh, works in those tricks and uh, mm. giving a big motivational push to, uh, to young kids not to be afraid of maths and to, to give it a go in school because it, it pays off.
0: Oh, yeah. And there's some event involving a zoo as well? Or
1: Yeah, we have um, for uh, secondary schools uh, transition year, we have maths in and out of the zoo. Uh, another uh, unlikely uh, title, I think, unlikely talk. And he, uh, this is Professor Chris Budd, who's not only the professor of maths at the Royal Institution, but he's also a professor of maths physics at our applied maths at uh, bath university and uh, he's a terrific speaker and he's going to be talking about how maths is important uh, in animal behaviour and that's on in the rds uh, for schools but on uh, friday night the 21st of october uh, it'll be on in the science gallery uh, open to an adult audience and, and afterwards we'll have Maths musicians and maths magicians uh, entertaining the crowds.
0: Mm. So I believe not all of the events are aimed at kids. There, there's ones for adults too.
1: Yeah, we've um, a number of evening events. Uh, in fact, every evening in Dublin, there's there's events. Uh, I don't know did I give you the dates of Maths Week? It's, it's 15th of October to the 22nd of October. Mm-hmm. And every evening uh, during the week, there are events uh, for adults, and they can be found at www.mathsweek.ie <clears throat> and uh, yeah we have uh, probably uh, one of the, the uh, least intimidating environments for anyone who had uh, uh, bad uh, memories of maths at school and this is strictly for an adult audience maths in the pub
0: oh that sounds uh, good
1: yeah in, in, that will be in the mercantile in um, Dame Street on the Tuesday night and that will be with the Alchemist Cafe people and uh, I should point out that, uh, that Maths Week is a partnership of uh, groups, uh, almost 50 groups around the country, including people like the Alchemist Cafe and the Science Gallery in Trinity and UCD and Trinity and DCU and DIT and Dublin City and uh, libraries. Uh, you know, coming together <clears throat> just this one week to, to try and give Maths a big push and show people uh, a side of Maths probably weren't aware of.
0: Mm, that sounds great and I believe it is an annual event. Can you tell us a bit about how it got started and, and why it was started?
1: Yeah well it was, I run a centre uh, in Waterford IT uh, to promote uh, science and engineering primarily. My background, I'm an engineer and uh, we were, <coughs> uh, we've been very very successful uh, promoting science and engineering and we um, Decided that uh, we really needed to, to do something about maths because the, the attitude Irish people have about maths leaves a, a lot to be desired. So we decided to set up a maths week.
0: This was a few years ago?
1: <coughs> yeah, this was, uh, I suppose, five years ago now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a word with uh, two other mathematicians, uh, one of them being Fia Crocabra from Maynooth, who organizes the annual Hamilton Walk there during Maths Week. Mm-hmm. And uh, I asked them, would they run stuff during Maths Week? And we might see if a Maths Week was feasible. And that was in May 2006. By the time October 2006 came around, with 13 centres around the country running things. And we had uh, probably about 10,000 people participated.
0: Ooh, great. And
1: it just has mushroomed from there it's uh, last year we had over a hundred thousand people participating. Wow! And uh, a lot of that activity is in school itself. The teachers are great. The schools are great. Uh, pu- you know, uh, devising all sorts of novel maths activities during the week. You know, uh, more fun style uh, quizzes, challenges, maths trails. The, the variety is incredible. So it really is. I mean, people talk a lot of doom and gloom about maths in Ireland, but the The appetite is there the interest and when you see the reaction of you know a hundred thousand or more young people that participate you know you have to say that uh, the future should be bright uh, if we keep it up.
0: Mm. And just leading on from that um, just briefly do you have a a personal opinion on how we could improve the performance of our Leaving Cert and Junior Cert students when it comes to maths?
1: Yeah well it's a it's quite a complex problem there's a lot of different influences uh <clears throat> the minister for education and and the schools and that are working at the curriculum end and and delivery and that uh my en- my belief is that we need to change people's attitude towards maths we may- need to have everyone see how maths is not only important in many of the jobs uh at present and many of the jobs we'll have in the future it's key in those areas it's also important uh, in our everyday lives, in money management, in understanding information that's coming at us through the media, statistics, probability, risk, that sort of thing. But it's also <coughs> it's accessible. It's uh, it's fun. It does need hard work in school, but uh, you know hard work will pay off, and that's we're trying to get that message across, change people's attitudes, and we think the rest will follow them
0: great so finally where can people find out more information about maths week
1: yeah we have um, all our events on uh, www.mathsweek.ie and we it's uh, there's events as I say running all around Mm. the island of Ireland but uh, loads in Dublin including I might add on the Saturday the 15th of October we'll be at the top of Grafton Street doing maths in the street now if you don't know Mm. what sort of maths can be done in the street come along and see us. Oh. we have circus performers, magicians and uh, all sorts of fun things.
0: I'm intrigued, Owen. I, I, w- I will be there. I'll make a, make a date to be there.
1: Great. we look forward to that.
0: <laughs> Thanks very much for talking to Thanks us, and take care you. now. Bye. Bye-bye. This week in our Elevator Scientist slot, Lenny asks Andy Shearer of the Centre for Astronomy at NUI Galway to describe his career in a nutshell.
3: So how did you get interested in, in physics and astronomy?
2: What, what, what do you think inspired you or, or kicked that off? I got interested in astronomy before I got interested in physics. Um, and I suppose, you know, sort of when I was about 12, I, as a lot of people are, I was just fascinated by the universe. And uh, I was good at maths and I was good at good at physics, and I kind of took it from that. So I, I then went on to do actually an astronomy degree rather than a physics degree. Where did you study and what in, is? in London. Um... And then went on to to Durham and to Bristol. After that, and how did you end up in Galway? <laughs> That's a really good question. It seemed like a good idea at the time. The um, what happened with that is that I had I'd been working in industry. I'd been working as an astronomer, and then I worked in industry for a while, and I thought I'd be fancy going back into into uh, working as an astronomer again, or a physicist. And I wrote to somebody in uh, there was a job advertised in Ireland, and I wrote to somebody here asking them for a reference. So i would worked with them in Bristol and he we said, well, if you don't get the job, um, there's a job here for you. So we decided we came over to Galway 20 years ago for a year. And we've stayed ever since.
4: What do you think
3: the biggest misconceptions um, are that people have about astronomers or what
4: astronomy is or what doing astronomy is?
2: I think the biggest
3: misconception
2: is that kind of astronomers or scientists are different to other people that most scientists are people who you'll find in supermarket queues, they'll be doing their kind of sports activities, they'll be standing on the terraces or they'll be be running or doing whatever, whatever, you know, the kind of normal things. They're they're no different to anybody else. Um, The main difference is, and I think you'll find this if you ask most scientists questions, particularly people working in universities, is they've probably got one of the best jobs in the world because they're actually paid to do something they enjoy doing. And not everybody can actually be in in, in that position. Absolutely, yeah. And you get also you get to work with some really interesting people as well who come over from all over the world and things like that. And that's, again, to me, one of the kind of beauties of being a scientist is that you meet fellow scientists from anywhere in the world. It doesn't matter where they come from, you've got that common, common bond of both being scientists coming through. And this was particularly, I thought, was very relevant during, for example, during the Cold War, when you'd meet Russian scientists and the Russian scientists were just the same as everybody else, and there was no problem. We were all trying to solve the same kind of problems, and to be honest, we all had the same kind of problems with our own governments as well, trying to get funding, for <laughs> funding for our science. So we can actually look at the sort of similarities uh, between people. So I actually find that has been one of the best aspects of science as well, cause the kind of international aspect.
3: And could you could you pick out any uh, any any highlights from your careers in astronomy today today that, that really stand out for you, in terms of? Moments that, you know, made you really excited to be an astronomer?
2: Yeah, we um, some of the things is when you actually discover something, you suddenly realise that, yeah, you now understand something uh, which you didn't understand before, or you've seen something which you didn't, hadn't seen before, or nobody had seen before. Um, we've had a number here, a number of really quite good discoveries. One have been um, discovering two of the five optical pulsars. So when you actually, you know, you take your observations, um, and then there's a really long process of, uh, of reducing them and suddenly you do get to that moment and you think, ah, that's worked. And that's, that's doing exactly what we expected to do. So there's that kind of excitement of the kind of discovery. And there's another one, because we build instruments, um, we build our own kind of quite dedicated cameras to, to take these observations. When they work for the first time, that's quite a buzz as well, because quite often it isn't, you know, you've got a five-year project which has been building up to something and then eventually you switch, switch everything on for the first time. And hopefully it works. Mm. And it doesn't. It takes a few days before you iron out all the problems. That's, that's quite a good, that's a good mm. high as well.
0: 2011 is the International Year of Chemistry, so it's a good time to ask, what has chemistry ever done for us? Well, one area where chemistry is essential is in the electronics industry. Every modern device that we use from a laptop to an iPod wouldn't work if it weren't for chips and chips wouldn't function if it weren't for the special chemical elements that are used to manufacture them. Joining us on the line now is Simon Elliott from the Tyndall Institute in Cork, who's going to tell us more about why chemistry is so important to electronics. Hello, Simon. Welcome to the show.
4: Hello. Thank you. Great to be here.
0: Oh, good. Good to have you. Um. Many people will have heard of silicon chips uh, without giving too much thought to what silicon actually is. Can you tell us a bit about what silicon is and and why it's used in chips?
4: Well, silicon is one of the elements in the periodic table. And it's uh, one of the most important elements because of the way we use it in electronics. It sometimes conducts electricity and it sometimes doesn't conduct electricity. So it's right there in the middle. And that's what makes it so useful for electronics because we can make it conduct electricity or not depending on what we want it to do in the in the electronic chip
0: and where does silicon actually come from
4: well it's actually in sand all the sand on the seashore is silicon oxide uh, so it's very plentiful um, uh, it's then purified and the silicon is extracted from the sand and made into a really really pure single crystal and that is chopped up very fine, uh, like on a, on a butcher's meat slicer, into these really fine thin wafers. And they just look like silvery silvery circular wafers. And uh, that's what is the basis for the silicon chip then.
0: Okay, and, and the silicon chip has been uh, around for, for quite a while, but I, I believe now it's actually kind of reaching the end of the road in terms of how useful it is.
4: Well, I think we'll keep basing everything on the silicon chip, but we're building more and more new materials into it. And uh, silicon is going to be doing less of the work and other new materials are going to be doing more of the things that we need to make chips go faster.
0: Okay. Well, what kind of other uh, substances are we talking about?
4: Well, uh, silicon is a semiconductor. Sometimes conducts and sometimes doesn't. And there are other semiconductors, uh, and we're thinking of using them instead. So there's things like gallium arsenide, indium antimonide, indium gallium arsenide, lots of related materials, and some of them be- uh, behave better, so they conduct electricity faster, or they don't have the problems that uh, silicon has. So uh, there's a lot of research now about whether we can. Uh, build on the silicon chip, you know whether we can put down other materials like like gallium arsenide, for example, and still get the chip to work, but get it to work faster
0: okay and uh, how do you actually then uh, test those elements and what would make for a, a good a good element
4: well there's a very long shopping list of what what each material has to do. Uh, you, you would have to test them then, yes. So this is what we do in the research. Um, you, you have to lay down the new material first, so you have to work out a way of depositing it in the structure that you need for the electronics, and then you would test it electrically. So um, in the way that it would operate in the electronic device, you run it, run it through a test circuit, and see is it giving you that improvement in performance. So will you be able to Store more data, um, will you be able to access your data faster? will it give a better display on your screen? all these things that we want. so lots of different properties have to come together and all be correct in order to, for, for a material to be uh, to be used in the next generation
0: I see, and uh, I believe uh, that's what you're doing there at Tyndall. You're, you're looking for new materials.
4: Yes, there's lots of materials research going on at Tyndall. Uh, we're basically looking at the future of electronics. And one big area is getting these new materials into electronic chips. So lots of people in, in Tyndall are material scientists um, and chemistry has a big role to play. Um, so one of our research projects is how to deposit these new materials onto the silicon chip. And um, so how to lay them down. The, the, the chip is built up kind of like a sandwich, mm-hmm. a very, very many layered sandwich. And each layer of the sandwich has to be deposited on the previous layer. So when we think of a new material, we have to also think of a way of laying it down, of depositing it.
3: Um, It sounds like silicon can't be removed from the equation, though, that you have to put other materials on top of it, and um, it's indispensable, really, then, isn't it?
4: That's right, yeah. I mean, the whole industry is based on silicon. So the silicon chip is here to stay, and that will always be kind of the foundation of everything else. But individual elements are being swapped in and out, and new materials are being inserted at, at, at points, And and certain layers of the sandwich are being changed. And each time we do that, we get a little improvement. And added together, these things bring about the new, faster computers that we get every few years on the market.
3: Why were other elements um, tested? What what was wrong with just using silicon as it was? And um, how do you discover that other elements are
4: semiconductors as well? Uh, Well, I guess it's always been uh, known that silicon wasn't the only one that would work. They say that uh, in in the start of the electronics uh, efforts, say in the 1940s and 1950s, they started using germanium. It's better on paper. It should work better. And uh, nearly all of its properties are better, but it... um, formed a, a poor interface with the next layer in the sandwich. And for that reason, they tried silicon, and they found, oh gosh, silicon works better in that particular way. And since then, we've been, we've been based on silicon. But now we're able to go back and look at these other materials and say, well, if we, could, if we could engineer them better, maybe we can try the other materials. So the properties, of the materials are kind of well known. And it's just, can you process them? And can you put them down in the really fine, thin layers that are needed? So that's what lots of our research is, is on in Tyndall, is can we process these materials really down at the nanometer level, just atom by atom. Some of these layers are so thin, it's only maybe six or eight atoms thick, and then the next layer goes on. So it's, it's a very precise form of, form of chemistry, really.
0: And I believe, Simon, that one of the projects you're working on, one of the applications uh, will eventually be in memory sticks.
4: That's right, yeah. This particular one was trying to improve memory sticks like the USB sticks that you plug into the back of a computer or the, or the memory cards you put into a digital camera and uh, they store data and the way they store the data is by storing electrical charge and certain materials are better than others at storing electrical charge so we were looking to see could we uh, put down these very thin layers of, of, a, of an improved material a uh, material was called lanthanum-doped zirconium oxide, which sounds very complicated. It's got a mouthful. <laughs> But uh, it's a material that stores charge better than the previous material that was used. Um, And again, the trick was, could we lay it down in these really thin layers? Uh, So this was part of a European project, and all the different partners in the project had a job to do. And we had chemists developing the materials and the the chemicals. And then we had material scientists and physicists analysing the films and seeing had we got the structures we wanted. And then there were um, semiconductor companies, so electronics companies, uh, seeing were these the right kind of materials for their use in the flash memory and in other capacitors and electrical components. So it, it was good. The materials that we developed and the way we laid them down, we got a three times improvement in performance.
0: Oh, that's quite a, uh, quite a lot. And are, are uh, these materials actually being used right now, or will we see that in the future?
4: It'll probably take a while for it to actually make it through to the market. The companies would have a range of options open to them, they'd uh, look at all the research going on and weigh up the, the pros and cons of everything. So now this new material has gone into the mix. It's one of the new materials that they could use uh, down the line in the future. Oh. Uh, so hopefully it'll be the one maybe that'll be used in the one terabyte flash memory if that ever comes out.
0: Mm. Okay. You'll have to give it a bit more catchy name though, I think, if that's going to happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Simon, thanks a so million for talking to us today. In this week's Culture Corner, we have regular contributor Trina O'Connell here to tell us about her trip to the National Aquarium in Salt Hill, Galway. Trina, how did
3: you get on? I had a brilliant time. Absolutely fantastic. Right. Oh, stop using great adjectives. Maybe I'll tell you about it. Um, <laughs> no, it was great crack. Uh, we specific. I specifically chose. So I went on holidays with my very handsome boyfriend. His name is John. So if you hear referred to him as John later, that's grand. So I was like, right, we're going on holidays, and I specifically want to go to the aquarium in Salt Hill because they've got a sunfish. Ooh. Now, for those of you who don't know what a sunfish is, it's the world's largest bony fish, and they can grow up to two thousand kilograms. Wow! Big fish. Wow! But the, the the specimen they have in in the national aquarium is still quite small yet. Uh, naturally, they don't have the room for him, so at some point he may have to go away. But How long like, is he at the moment? He's he's still quite small. I'm going to wave my hands around the place, which is no oh, use. So the he's one probably that got away was metre. this big. He's about a metre, say. Is he a baby? baby fish? He's a young fish, yeah. Um, they found him in distress off Kerry and decided to take him in. Oh, oh, what's his name? They Vinnie. Vinnie. His <laughs> name is Vinny the Sunfish, right? And... He's lovely he's he's swimming around and they have a, they have a few different sizes of tank in there and he's in the largest tank which is their ocean tank um, and he's got buddies in there so there's Valentine the only white skate on display there's oh, what's a skate like it looks a bit like a ray it's a big flat fish oh with the kind of diamond on the underneath. And the mouth on the underside oh, like and the great fish. thing about the ocean tank is it's about two stories high so if you're on the top floor you can look in from the beginning or from the Above, but if you're on the ground floor, you can see, and when the skate kind of goes past, it's got these funny smiley faces on. <laughs> oh, know?
4: yeah. And need the
3: sunfish is kind of going around, going, Oh, so if you're, if you're not familiar <laughs> with the sunfish, they kind of seem to have a permanently semi open mouth. They normally eat lots of jellyfish, so they so need to you've be got ready a to surprise eat a lot. fish and a smiling fish. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant, right? <laughs> all the different types of <laughs> yeah. fish, all different types of fish. Um, so you, you, you kind of come in the door in the first place, and the first thing you see is this huge tank full of fish but the second thing you see is water coming at you because it's a huge splash tank so spoosh just Ooh. as you come in the door. Now the fish seem to enjoy it. They all seem to float backwards and float forwards again once the water settles. It's so you might actually get your feet wet you when might you go in? You might get a little bit more wet depending on how close you stand to the tank <laughs> okay. and you're not expecting it. Um, okay, so don't, don't
0: wear your new suede boots is the message no, here. No,
3: no new suede boots. They, it's it's not the best of moose. Um, they have other... Oh, so the ocean tank is behind that. It's huge. But like your best bet is to go around and all the other things so that you can get really wowed by the ocean tanks so that when you see the other things they're still exciting um, so one of the biggest tanks that's on the floor apart from the ocean tank is this large flat touching pool Ooh. so you'll find these in a lot of aquariums right? so if you haven't been to an aquarium before go to Salt Hill and if you're on holidays and you're near an aquarium I love aqua- go to your local aquarium or wherever you are um, but they have a touching pool and these are great this is like a petting zoo uh-huh. except for fish, for fish. so you have things like they have rays so you're familiar with rays they have dogfish swimming around so they're like small sharks and they're maybe oh, about yeah. maybe a metre long and you can just stick your hand in yeah well you ask the staff first before you start <laughs> hassling the fish I hope there aren't any little tiny sharks in there <laughs> they are tiny sharks though dogfish yeah, yeah but they brilliant. wouldn't bite no they don't they? bite no and they don't fetch the newspaper but <laughs> they're, a, they're a solid shark. Like They're a small shark. They're hmm. brilliant. There's turbot in there as well. What's, have you ever seen a turbot? a turbot? no. They have got to be the weirdest looking fish I saw that day, right? They're these knobbly, scaly, flat fish. And now they're one of the fish that starts out round. So if you imagine a round fish, it's got an eye on the left, it's got an eye on the right. Okay. But flat fish are kind of like a round fish on its side. Mm-hmm. And so what the turbot does is, during its growing one of the eyes migrate around to the top. What? So its mouth looks a bit wonky, its eyes look a bit wonky, and it's all knobbly, and it's swimming around in this touch pool, waiting for people to start. Oh, <laughs> I'd say nobody wants to touch the turbus. <laughs> also, I didn't know the fish, fish were ever asymmetrical. That's sort really of weird. I always thought they oh. had perfect symmetry. Yeah, you yeah. need to go yeah. to the aquarium and look at all the odd fish. There are things <laughs> yeah. called pipefish. You find them around Ireland. Most of the fish now in this aquarium you'll find off the shore of Ireland, or on, in the inland, in the freshwater. So they have things called pipefish. You familiar with pipefish? I'm not familiar no. with the fish mm. but I went over and I saw them and imagine you took a seahorse and you turned it into a piece of string it's this long wormy piece of fish Girls. but it can tie on to things <laughs> like it's like, like not quite as nifty as a, as a seahorse but it's close enough and it can wrap itself around things and you find them off the coast of Ireland Oh, loads of things um, they have mullet do you like mullet? As a haircut, or <laughs> no, as or, as or as a fish, <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> and they have shoals them, and my God, are they the ugliest fish? <laughs> They're big, ugly fish with the powder <laughs> lips on it. <laughs> so we did have great fun actually going around insulting the fish to their faces and they were couldn't you hear us were you impersonating Mullet I was impersonating their Mullet backs. and there was grumpy pike upstairs I was a grumpy pike have you seen pike <laughs> they have oh they have that they're kind of very the, the utter lippy yeah. they're the, the the lower lip that's not this. yeah they're always in a bad mood yeah. and you don't yeah, want to catch them to be fish. honest they, they have quite the bite on them <laughs> yeah. they're brilliant like so that's Sounds great, Trina. So where can we go for more information? I would recommend visiting nationalaquarium.ie and failing that, get the bus to Galway and get the bus out to Salton. Now we just have
0: time to take a quick look at events. Uh, Trina,
3: what's going on in the science world? Well, there's plenty going on. Did you know that European Shark Week runs from the 15th to the 23rd of October? I did not know that. So, well, if you would like to celebrate it, the National Aquarium in Salt Hill is holding two workshops, one on the 15th for 8-12 year olds and a junior workshop on the 22nd for 5-7 to seven year olds. So check out the National Aquarium website at nationalaquarium.ie for more information, for tickets and to maybe go see the dog sharks. Um, on the 17th of October, the Royal Irish Academy will present its annual Hamilton lecture. This year, Edward Witten will pr- deliver a talk on knots and the application of knot theory to quantum mechanics. To reserve your seat, visit ria.ie. Elements is finished, but we don't have long to wait for the next Science Gallery exhibition. On the October 21st, the Future of Water show opens. It will run until January and explores water and its usage on the planet. So visit sciencegallery.ie forward events for more details. And last, but certainly not least, Tuesday the 25th of October, Professor Sir Christopher Llewellyn-Smith will deliver a lecture about the energy challenge in the RDS. Sir Christopher will explore the possible ways of overcoming the technical and political challenges the rising world population faces with regard to energy generation. Admission is free, although booking ahead is advisable. So see rds.ie forward slash events for more. So that's it for this week's episode of
0: Cybernia. Thanks to all our guests. Thanks to Gavin, our producer at Near FM. And thank you for listening. Don't forget you can find us online at cybernia.ie or download the latest episode from iTunes. Find us on facebook.com cybernia or follow us on Twitter. And you can email us at podcast at cybernia.ie. Goodbye.